This is American Hysteria's Aftershock, where I share with you a story that didn't make it into the main episode. I'm your host, Chelsea Weber-Smith, and today we're talking about the lost cause. It's just such a personal symbol, like here in the South, and it means so much to so many people. Like, it's just about pride and where you come from and being proud to show who you are. Well, I get, I get it. It's heritage. I have heritage to the Civil War, like I said, with, General, with Major Nerissay. But here's the thing. It's time to let it go. In April 2017, extremist members of the alt-right and various white nationalist and neo-Nazi organizations came together in Charlottesville, Virginia, to march in the Unite the Right rally, resulting in the death of Heather Heyer when an internet troll turned Nazi plowed his car through a street of counter-protesters. Flying alongside the Iron Cross and swastikas were a slew of Confederate battle flags. Supporters of the rally stated that the primary reason for organizing was to protest the removal of a statue in Lee Park, a statue of the park's namesake, Confederate General Robert E. Lee. As quickly as people began to protest on both sides, a national dialogue emerged surrounding Confederate iconography in the American South and also in the American North, and how their presence seems to promote the white supremacist values of the now defunct rebellion they represented. Flags and monuments of Confederate leaders seem to have been a fixture in America since the war itself. But are these truly historical monuments, ones that deserve to stand in public rather than in a museum, as proponents often state? As it turns out, these monuments sprung up not in the short aftermath of the Civil War, but in waves that mirror the time periods of movements toward and against Black civil rights. A lot of us wonder how on earth those more normal folks, those outside of blatant neo-Nazis and white supremacists, could support the Confederate flags and statues. It turns out that a long-term story of cognitive dissonance, one handed down on both sides to their respective regions, led to the Confederacy becoming a symbol of Southern pride. Fans of the Rebel South claim that these are not symbols of white supremacy, not symbols of a pro-slavery ideology, because that's not what the Confederacy fought for. Instead, they tell a story about a valiant fight for states' rights. Still, supporters of the flag argue it is not a symbol of hate. This is the battle flag. It's no different from honoring veterans of the Iraqi war, Korean War, Vietnam War, this is honoring the veterans. This ideology is most often called the lost cause, and it's a revisionist history rooted in a desire to not only justify, but also glorify the Confederate cause, which indeed in some ways was based in states' rights. But what was the right they were fighting for? First, let's look at the words and declarations of those states attempting to leave the Union that give us solid proof that the overwhelming reason for the Civil War was indeed the preservation of Southern slavery, as well as the right to spread that slavery into the North. 
As mentioned, the Civil War was about states' rights, kind of. Though part of the deal for staying in the Union was the federal government overriding the states' rights of the North, allowing slaveholders to enter their states with their slaves and set up plantations. The South had been talking about secession a decade before the war, as tensions began growing around slave labor, and the election of Abraham Lincoln was labeled an act of war by many Southern politicians who believed the North was coming to seize their slaves, and of course, the age-old fear to force their white women to marry black men. All the declarations, the Confederate Constitution, all the speeches given before and during the Civil War presents slavery as the very state right that was being fought to uphold, a fact that an estimated 90 to 95% of scholars agree on. In his famous Cornerstone speech, Vice President of the Confederacy, Alexander H. Stevens, spelled it out in no uncertain terms on March 21st, 1861, just weeks before the first shots of the Civil War were fired. Quote, our new government is founded upon exactly the opposite ideas. Its foundations are laid, its cornerstone rests upon the great truth that the Negro is not equal to the white man, that slavery, subordination to the superior race, is his natural and normal condition. With us, all of the white race, however high or low, rich or poor, are equal in the eye of the law. Not so with the Negro. Subordination is his place. Then he talks about God-loving slavery for a while and concludes with, quote, Our Confederacy is founded upon principles in strict conformity with these laws. Mississippi's Declaration of Secession read, quote, Our position is thoroughly identified with the institution of slavery, the greatest material interest of the world. The Confederate States Constitution read, quote, The new Constitution has put at rest forever all the agitating questions relating to our peculiar institutions. African slavery, as it exists among us, is the proper status of the Negro in our form of civilization. This was the immediate cause of the late rupture and present revolution. Texas, Virginia, South Carolina, each and every state had very similar declarations to these, mentioning slavery over and over and over, making it very clear that this was the catalyst for the secession of the 11 slave-holding Southern states. There were other reasons too, things like taxation that the South didn't agree with, but slavery was overwhelmingly the primary cause. But of course, let us be fair, there is another side to the story as well, or rather another false narrative that serves the age-old purpose of creating heroes and villains out of a complicated story. The Union, as we venerate them today, did not in fact go to war to free the enslaved. They went to war to keep the Union of the United States together. This was the original mission of Abraham Lincoln, and I think it's important to consider that part of the conversation. On August 27, 1862, President Lincoln, who did indeed loathe the institution of slavery, wrote a letter to the New York Tribune that said, quote, 
If I could save the Union without freeing any slave, I would do it. And if I could save it by freeing all the slaves, I would do it. If I could save it by freeing some and leaving others alone, I would also do that. What I do about slavery and the colored race, I do because I believe it helps save the Union. And what I forbear, I forbear because I do not believe it would help save the Union. The Emancipation Proclamation would not be written into law until two years into the war, and the promise of freedom to slaves did not apply to the states that had not tried to leave the Union. Though it's important to note that 3.5 of the 4 million slaves were in those southern states. But in large part, this was a strategic move by Lincoln to weaken enemy forces and to engage black soldiers to further strengthen the Union cause. As usual, white supremacy was embedded in both sides of the war, and though one side was certainly fighting to uphold the institution, that doesn't mean that there were heroes on the other side fighting exclusively for the rights of black people. So yeah, it's complicated, and I've done my best to explain it here simply. Now that that's out of the way, let's see how the majority of Americans came to believe that the war, at its core for the Confederacy, was not about slavery. After their defeat, due in part to the Confederacy's embarrassment as well as their continued support of slavery, one man emerged to offer an alternative reality, to give a sense of pride and vindication back to the defeated South. Born on a plantation that had been in his family for generations, a man named Edward A. Pollard wrote two books called The Lost Cause and The Lost Cause Regained in 1866 and 1868 respectively. These books elevated the narrative of the happy slave, stating that bondage, quote, elevated the African and was in the interest of human improvement and which protected the Negro in life and limb and in many personal rights and bestowed upon him a sum of individual indulgences, which made him altogether the most striking type in the world of cheerfulness and contentment. You ever notice how finding time and energy to do the most basic human necessity, eat literal food, has become just another exhausting task jammed into our increasingly inhuman schedules? Well, your spring can be a little more stress-free with Factor. Factor will provide you with delicious, never-frozen, ready-to-eat, gourmet meals that are chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready-to-eat in just two minutes. Each week, you get to choose from a menu of 35 options to create your perfect breakfast, lunch, or dinner with absolutely no prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. And Factor makes sure you get exactly what you want. You can tailor deliveries to your schedule and customize how many meals you want each and every week, and you can pause anytime. So just head to factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 and use code American and Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code American Hysteria 50 at factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box 
box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Check out Factor today. At a time when the victorious Union government was promoting reconciliation between states of the North and South, this lost cause narrative allowed citizens of the disgraced former Confederacy to hold dual allegiances, one to the Star-Spangled Banner and one to the Southern Cross. Even Jefferson Davis advocated for reconciliation during his final years, though his allegiance to the Southern cause never wavered, a fact that citizens of former Confederate states latched onto in the post-war years as a symbol of Southern dignity. With a sudden renewed popularity, Davis, who was once viewed as a big loser and the reason for the fall of the South, went on a kind of comeback tour by buggy, and the reception was insane. People literally kissed the wheels of the carriage, children threw flowers at the feet of the horses, and women openly wept at the sight of him. By the time of his death in 1889, his legacy was cemented in a long-term hero worship, an emblem of their struggle. Crowds of thousands mobbed the train that carried his casket, forcing it to stop on several occasions. People fired cannons and guns, laid magnolias and rhododendrons on the tracks. There was something about this new reception, this different kind of reception, where 25,000 people gathered in Davis's final resting place in Richmond, Virginia. There was now a kind of dignity in defeat. There was a pride in being a continuous underdog, and the lost cause started to cement. Some Confederate monuments did spring up after the war, the earliest statues were placed in cemeteries or on former battlefields with the sole purpose of memorializing the thousands of unidentified dead soldiers who were often buried in mass graves. Ladies' Aid Societies funded urn-shaped statues as early as 1867 to place at these sites and ensure the graves did not go unmarked. Two years later, the locations of these monuments began to change. They were now situated in public spaces, such as parks, or more symbolically and almost hauntingly so, outside the city courthouses that would go on to incarcerate Black people at markedly higher rates than white people to this very day. The shapes of the monuments had changed as well. Instead of simple grave markers, there were elaborate depictions of Confederate leaders like Jefferson Davis or General Robert E. Lee. After 1900, the production of Confederate monuments began to rapidly increase. This campaign was led by a racist league of affluent white women known as the United Daughters of the Confederacy, whose singular goal seemed to be the upholding of this new lost cause narrative. Formed in 1894, the UDC was seen by Lost Cause believers as an altruistic group of women, tending to both the memories of deceased Confederate soldiers and to the aging ones still living. 
Throughout the 20th century, the UDC had been at the forefront of the Lost Cause movement, and their support for white supremacy has often been thinly veiled. But up until 1936, the UDC publicly expressed support and solidarity with the Ku Klux Klan. Many of the statues were built on private land owned by the organization, so as long as they owned that land, the monuments couldn't be taken down. Though they probably don't like how I've described their history, the United Daughters of the Confederacy are still active today. As of 2018, their website still read, quote, Slaves, for the most part, were faithful and devoted. Most slaves were usually ready and willing to serve their masters. The next year, that statement was removed, and in classic Lost Cause style, the words slave and slavery were all removed from their website. Come the 1920s, a great deal more monuments were constructed, including Charlottesville's Robert E. Lee, just as the KKK rose into a more widespread, shocking white public support that they hadn't enjoyed before, due in large part to the new racial mixing that was taking place among young people, as well as their heroic portrayal in the landmark film, Birth of a Nation, that we covered in our terrorism series. The movie showed the KKK as galloping in to continue the noble traditions of the antebellum South. The film continued that lost cause story of the happy slave and venerated the Klan that existed to stop corrupt government, prevent the anarchy of Negro rule, and to protect their white women from the freedom of black people that turned them into sexual deviants, as well as those from the union that also seemed to be coming to take their women away. More statues rose in the 1950s and 60s as desegregation sparked renewed violence all over the nation. It seems clear that these are not coincidences, but further show a serious association between the Civil War's foundation and the intimidations that targeted Black folks pushing for freedoms still denied. The battle flag was a common sight at civil rights events. The KKK even adopted it as their symbol. And it was used as a badge of intimidation, a badge of fear, a badge of white superiority, and a badge of death and destruction. Uh, many African-American people remember uh, whenever you saw Confederates and white mobs coming after black folk, usually they had a Confederate flag. And today, when a gunman who embraces the flag attacks the black community, it forces the nation to more clearly understand the history and symbolism of the flag and how it should be used in public spaces. The stories told, the stories passed down, have caused the lines between Southern heritage and Southern pride and the Confederate cause becoming blurred, rebranded as a fight for states' rights and the preservation of the Southern way of life outside of slavery. The association has become one of a kind of badass rebellion of the rebel South, fighting against a kind of government tyranny. When you put it that way, it seems pretty cool. But when we go back and look at history, it becomes anything but. To many Black people who have to walk by Confederate flags and monuments, this is just more proof that white supremacy is alive and well in the United States. Even if those flying it are true believers in the Lost Cause story, the lost cause story that has still been used to uphold the same white supremacy. 
There are likely many people who fly the Confederate flag who don't hold overtly racist views. But put in context, what good is that flag, really? Let's remember our last episode called Rednecks and the Rainbow Coalition created by Black Panther Fred Hampton, a coalition that included those identified as hillbillies, those who flew the Confederate flag, until the Black Panthers explained to them why it hurt them, why it scared them. And those hillbillies, they never flew it again. The removal of Confederate iconography on public land has effectively been halted by the governments of many southern states, who've passed laws deeming these statues as too historic to be removed. It begs the question, doesn't it? Should monuments built decades after the war they commemorate truly be considered historic? And if something's historic, does it belong in public or does it belong in a museum? The organizers of the Unite the Right rally probably think they were victorious after all, and they kind of were, because the vast majority of Confederate monuments, including Charlottesville's Robert E. Lee statue, remain in place. Hopefully this episode has helped you see, as it helped me see, why there's so much confusion and so much emotion on both sides around these symbols of the Confederacy. The Pew Research Center estimated that 48% of Americans believe that the Civil War was about states' rights, and only 38% believe it to be fought over slavery. Not only that, but 60% of those surveyed who were under 30 believed that the Civil War had nothing at all to do with slavery. The majority of high school teachers believe the war to be fought about states' rights and not that specific right of slavery. So it makes sense, in a way, that people aren't fully grasping the offensiveness, the pain that seeing that flag and those statues can elicit in Black people today. The Civil War was not a simplistic story of heroes versus villains, but it was a major catalyst for the eventual end to slavery and the slow march towards civil rights. The South, as it stands today, separated from this war by 150 years, isn't a homogenous place of Confederate flag-flying racists. But there is a lot of misinformation that allows a sense of Southern pride to veil the problems underneath. I love the South. In fact, I love it so much I'd like to move there. And I find so many of the people of this region to be kind, beautiful, hardworking, funny, and sometimes valiant and brave. But these qualities have nothing to do with the Confederacy. In fact, as we learned in the Rednecks episode, an association with the rebels of the South is essentially an association with the rich slaveholders and politicians that orchestrated this brutal war in their own favor. These symbols, for no good reason, hurt Black people who know better than anyone else what this war was truly fought over. And those who have to live among Confederate flags and monuments live among a story that no longer serves anyone at all, except to assert the continuing values of white supremacy as those in Lee Park did, or, on the other hand, to keep so many of us in a comfortable illusion. This was American Hysteria's Aftershock. 
next time on the show. I know I said last episode that we were going to cover homelessness, but actually our next episode covers an American dream to get rich quick. We're taking a break for a couple weeks and then we'll be back again. In the meantime, if you can, please consider becoming a patron of our show. You'll get extra episodes every month. You'll get videos. You'll get news that nobody else knows. And you'll even get episodes early. Just like everyone, we've been deeply affected by the COVID-19 pandemic. And anything you can donate helps us so much. American Hysteria's Aftershock is written, produced, and hosted by me, Chelsea Weber-Smith. Produced and edited by Clear Camo Studios, co-written by Riley Smith, and edited by Miranda Zickler. Thanks, as always, for listening and for being interested in the truth of our history, no matter how hard, no matter how complicated it might be. Until next time, I hope you have a great couple weeks. And again, please take care of each other. It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m., and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com Friends, hello. I'm Mike Regnetta, the host of Never Post, a new and independent news podcast about and for the internet. In addition to bringing you the latest in current events, we try to figure out why the internet and the world because of the internet is the way it is. How did influencers destroy tween fashion? What is posting disease and how do you ensure you don't catch it? From what device must one send important emails? We talk about what's going on online and ask together why. Why are we like this? Find Never Post wherever you get your podcasts.